Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you find your wins, have a better quality of life, and become the best leader you can be. Hey, have you subscribed to this podcast yet? Don't miss an episode. They're worth every single thing you paid for them, which is nothing because they're free. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Give us a rating and a review on your specific podcast player. This helps us with our podcast rankings and makes it easier for people to find us. And as always, please support those who help support us. On episode 102 of this podcast, Chris interviewed Justin Kwan, Michelle Andrews, and Richard Ruth. They pointed out that as a profession, we have done a great job of letting our patients know that myopia is not a big deal. If you can see 2020, there is no worry. It is the high myopes that are more dangerous. And as they said, that message is tragic. Any myopia has a higher risk of maculopathy, glaucoma, and earlier cataract development. In the MySight One Day clinical trials, only 4% of study participants who got ProClear One Days stayed stable in their myopia progression over the three-year period. That means you can confidently say parent by not going to a system geared to slow the myopia progression. There is a 96% chance your child's vision will get worse. This may take away some of the choice your child has in the future as to how they will correct their vision. Choice, not fear of the disease associations with myopia, is what best resonates with parents when it comes to myopia control for their children. And with Cooper Vision's MySight One Day, we now have an FDA-approved single-use contact lens to lessen the progression of myopia in our patients. Contact your Cooper Vision representative to find out more about MySight One Day contact lenses. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm Ted McElroy, and today I have with me Mr. Will Kiley. He is a regional advocate for Help One Now, which is a um, help organization that is based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. And I found out about this from one of our former uh, ho- uh, guests we had, Chris Morris. He was on January, I believe, of last year, and it was a really intriguing program they're doing. And I wanted to have Will come on and talk about how Help One Now works what kind of product programs they're doing and just really learn more about it. So, hey, Will, thanks for taking a Friday afternoon to spend some time and talk with me about this. Absolutely, Ted. It's great to be here. I appreciate you welcoming me and, and talking about this. And uh, the story Help One Now is trying to be a part of and welcome people into is one of my favorite things. So uh, I can think a few better things to do on a Friday, and I'm excited to talk about it. Great. How did Help One come about? I mean, where did it start? Who founded it? What, what, how did they get the, the, the need to take care of this? Yeah, our uh, founder and CEO, Chris Marlowe, uh, started Help One Now about 14 years ago. And he was on a, he was a, he's a pastor and was a pastor in Austin, Texas, starting a church. And he went on a trip to Zimbabwe to work with uh, another pastor in Zimbabwe, from Zimbabwe, uh, a pastor named John Chinyawa. And Pastor John was helping take care of an orphanage in Zimbabwe. And so Chris was on his way there to help with that. And uh, on their way to the orphanage, they stopped by a gas station where Pastor John knew a number of young people were sleeping and taking care of each other. And they had about enough food for the orphanage they were headed to uh, for a little under a month. And and they just checked on these kids sort of in the middle of the night. And, and one of the kids came up to Chris, our founder and CEO, and asked Chris, um, I'm sorry, my country's like this. Is there anything that you could do to help? Um, and Chris knew the food he had in his backpack and he knew the food they had in the van, but they also knew that food was headed towards other orphans in need. And that after they went through the supply they had in their van, um, Pastor John didn't know what was gonna come next. And so he looked at this uh, young boy who asked Chris if he could, if he could help him. Uh, and Chris said, no. And he said, no, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. And when he traveled back to the States, um, something in Chris had, had sort of broken in that moment. Um, I can't believe I told him no. I, can't, I don't think that's true. If that is true, I can't really handle or wrestle with why that would be true. Um, and I need to heal uh, what just broke in me. I need to be able to say yes to that young man. Um, the other piece of this is that Chris had been on a few, a few missions with other churches and other nonprofits and felt like... Um, you know, sometimes we're painting the sides of an orphanage and you can tell it's the fourth or fifth layer of paint. Sometimes we're, we're going out and, and doing work that doesn't necessarily feel effective. And, and, the, and most, most importantly, 
uh, sometimes I go on these trips and the people leading or the people in charge don't look like the people who are from that community. And Chris grew up um, in an area that certainly would, uh, he grew up wrestling with poverty himself and knew that he, his community wouldn't just let outsiders come in and make decisions. So I think there's something a little bit broken in the model here. And it's not broken that people shouldn't get engaged. It's not broken that we shouldn't have, um, we shouldn't have better solutions for poverty, but it might be broken that we're coming in uh, and needing to lead in communities we don't have experience in. And so he, he wanted to never say that again, never say like, no, there's nothing I can do for you. He's like, I don't feel like that can, that can be true. And he wanted to make sure that he was part of an organization um, that was investing in local leadership, that was following the lead of folks who are already in communities um, wrestling with extreme poverty and, and coming alongside them as opposed to sort of dictating ideas from on top. He, he believed that would be, that's how we would reach some kind of sustainable community transformation. Um, and so Help One now grew kind of, sort of organically out of that, actually. So our first partnership was in Zimbabwe with Pastor John. That was our first local leader whose lead we were following. And then uh, when the earthquake happened in Haiti, uh, it sort of devastated the country. Help One now had built up some momentum here in the States, had built up some some funding momentum. Um, and there felt like a call that we, we have to be involved. We can't say there's nothing we can do here. Um, a, a clear way out of this disaster in Haiti doesn't feel obvious, um, but that doesn't mean there, there aren't things we can do, tangible things we can do. And often local leaders are going to be able to name some of what those tangible things might be. Um, and then out of that, there were there have been a number of relationships and other nonprofits that have come to us and said, we think this model might be really, is really effective. We think this model might be really effective in the community that we serve. And we're wondering if maybe Help One Now would take this project under its umbrella um, and apply the Help One Now model um, of locally led partnership to what's already happening in this community. And so then we've expanded out to a number of other countries and communities since then. And, and we're in, we're, go, we're in our, we're currently in our 14th year. Wow. So, so how did you get involved with Help One Now? I mean, what's your background and what led you into this? Yeah, Ted, that's a great question. So uh, Help One Now, my wife and I were in Austin, Texas for the last five years before coming to Raleigh this fall. And I was teaching high school in Austin and, and going to church in Austin. And our church partner was at our church in Austin uh, partnered with Help One Now. So some of our tithing, some of the church budget went to Help One Now. And, and my wife and I donated in a pretty modest way. Um, as a teacher, I would often ask my, I got a practice of asking my students this question. I would, um, I would write on a, a sort of a note card. In the largest of senses, do you think the world uh, is getting more beautiful or less? Do you think we're headed toward a more beautiful story or a less beautiful story? And, and of course it's more complicated than that, but if you, if you had to pick today, what would you circle? And there was a more beautiful side and a less beautiful side as part of a creative writing project. And then they'd circle one side, they wouldn't show anybody. And then we would shuffle up the cards. You don't put your name on it, shuffle up the cards, pass them back out face down to the class. And I would say, if you're, if you were a betting person, what do you think is on your card? And I'm like, I'll give you $500. If you're right. Do you think that the class probably circled more beautiful or less? Um, and I did this with hundreds of students and hundreds of times everybody believed their card was going to say less beautiful. And a few kids would circle more beautiful or headed somewhere more beautiful. But most people, and, the, and not even most, I mean, the, the almost, almost, almost every single student believed the other students circled less beautiful and often did. Um, and I found that really hard to wrestle with. And the first time I did it, I was kind of shocked. And then the more I did it, the more I realized that this isn't, this isn't one class. This isn't one day. This isn't how they felt this week. Year after year, this is true. And then year after year, I'm working with our social workers on campus. And they're saying uh, anxiety is up. Depression is up. Senses of loneliness and purposelessness is up. And this is really boggling my mind. Um, what are the implications here? If young people believe that we're headed towards a worse place, what are the implications? And I... Um, was sad about that for my own daughter. I was sad about that for my own future. Um, and then I saw a help one now. Um, and I'd already been donating. I, be I believe deeply, just instinctually, I think it made a lot of sense, this model, this model of local leadership. 
Um, so we've been donating in a, in a modest way. But I saw these statistics uh, since I was born in 1990. Uh, extreme poverty, the bar for extreme poverty, even if you adjust for inflation, about 40% of the planet was living in extreme poverty when I was born. Um, and right now, pre-COVID, it was down to about 9%. Pretty remarkable. It, it, by, any, by any sense, it's, it's remarkable progress. It's, it's a billion plus more people uh, have, have broken cycles of poverty uh, since I was born. And yet the instinctual response is the world's getting worse. Um, at the turn of the century in 1999, about uh, 40%, no, hold on, let me get this correct. 16%, sorry. Uh, 16%, I can send you some of this data afterwards if it's helpful in the podcast, but 16% uh, of students, uh, primary age students, elementary school kids who could go to school, um, didn't have access or weren't going to primary school. Um, turns into millions of children without access just to elementary school. That number is now globally, not just regionally, but globally down to 8%. We are, by most measures, making incredible progress. And I think part of this maybe is a lot of cynicism and fear around the climate. I think a lot of young people internalize that, um, but there are there are reasons there are reasons for optimism and there are reasons for hope. And frankly, if we're going to have optimism or hope, uh, we have to we have to have the motivation to invest in them. We're going to have to devise solutions for a more beautiful future, and believe that it's believing that it's possible first is part of devising those solutions. Um, when I saw that and heard some of the stories of community transformation and family transformation that Help One Now is a part of. Uh, my real passion became how can I share that story with more people? How and and maybe it is about coming and joining the Help One Now narrative. Maybe it is about coming alongside us and being a part of it. But maybe it's just hearing the story so that you get invested in the nonprofit or the or the mission or the organization or the person or the, the relationship um, that gives you hope and optimism. So my my real mission has become I want those cards to turn out differently. And my daughter my daughter is one years old and I uh, one year old. And I hope that by the time she's in high school, um, those cards look a little bit different if I were to pass them out again to her class. And so I found Help One Now as a, a organization I already had a relationship and a trust built into, an organization that I kind of kicked the tires around. And there were, we value transparency. And so it's not too challenging to look at uh, our financials and, and to look at our, our uh, data and our metrics for, for how money is being spent and also the kind of change it's leading to. So I feel like I'd kick the tires a fair amount. Um, and when we moved to Raleigh for my wife's job, uh, so the kind of two main hubs of Help One Now where employees are, and there are only a handful of us, um, are Raleigh and Austin. And so uh, the COO, Lamar Stockton, is a family friend, uh, and he, he's a worship leader at our old church. And so he let me know that Help One Now was hiring my position, this sort of advocate position this, to tell the story of what we're doing. Um, and we were moving and the job was going to be in Raleigh. So it all kind of aligned pretty elegantly and perfectly. So um, I stepped out of the classroom and into this role last fall. So how does what you, I mean, I'm going to, this is kind of a loaded question. So how does what you did with your previous role as an educator play into the role that you now have with Help One Now? I think one of the ways it plays in Engaging with extreme poverty is uh, complex, and to do it really effectively, we have to we have to come behind holistic care, which looks like many layers. And so we've talked a lot about this optometry project in the Dominican Republic, which we may talk about today. But that project is part of uh, a very layered movement that involves a lot of people and a lot of moving pieces in order to truly help transform that community um, and transform generations of families. And so... I find that my job as an educator has helped inform slowing down and breaking down those pieces so that people can buy into this, buy into this narrative and buy into this story that sometimes really successful nonprofits have a very specific thing they do. We, we, what we do are we make drills for access to water. What we do is we fill backpacks up of school supplies and give them to students. There is nothing wrong with those nonprofits. I think they do remarkable work. We happen to do a different kind of work that sometimes, um, takes more time and certainly relies ex almost exclusively on relationship. And so, and I believe long game can, and we have evidence now long game that can be truly uh, in a lot of um, 
I believe that holistic work can be trans is transformational, can be transformational. But my job as a teacher, my past as a teacher helps me walk people through what that looks like and set setting realistic expectations. Um, so I, I find that part really engaging. I often get to lead a lot of dinner parties or small group conversation, and that that kind of facilitation seems similar to teaching. And then I'm lucky to go on um, some trips with folks and bring them down and sit and uh, curating those experiences alongside my colleagues also feels like it, it leads into some of those same skill sets that teaching. How do you build a remarkable experience for someone? Um, ask great questions, ask questions that I don't know the answer to. So really build up conversation where we're getting real with each other and diving into some of the, the deeper existential ideas around what does it mean to belong to one another? What does a thriving community look like? Um, I think facilitating those conversations um, are where I feel like my teacher self, my facilitator self uh, comes out, comes back out in this work. So you said earlier that statistically things are looking up, things are looking better, but yet we're not getting the message, I guess, you know, especially our youth are not getting that message. Um, is it more of a, um, effect of society, uh, the pressure from the media that we get to see all these things that grab our attention that aren't so beautiful, um, I mean, what do you feel like it's causing some of that? That's a great question, Ted. And when I, when I get to the bottom of that, we're going to see some real world change. Um, but I have some guesses or I have some hunches. And one, one is I think that uh, urgency is really motivating. So I think there is, there's what, what storytelling motivates people to action. You know, we have a huge problem and we want you to come solve it might be more motivating than we're making great progress and you should be a part of it. And people might see that message. And I think there's a school of thinking that when people hear that message, they're going to trust that someone else will be a part of it. Oh, if you're making all this great progress, then y'all keep going and I'm going to do my thing. I got plenty of issues today with my, with my kids right. and my work and my life. There's plenty, there's plenty of headache for me to deal with. Uh, if you're doing well, then keep on, keep it on. And so maybe sometimes a more effective narrative has been an, an urgency narrative or a, uh, or a dire, a crisis narrative. Also the world is, their world is full of chaos and crisis. I mean, look at the, the, I mean, we, we could both sit here and name five crises that have happened in the last week, right? We look at, and some of them are completely inexplicable, like the earthquake that just happened. Um, so it's not to say that the world is without crisis or the world is without urgent uh, trauma that needs attending to. It's, it is more, though, there is something to, be, to think through on, on what trajectory do we think that we're on. Um, and I think that, that sometimes that's generational. I think sometimes there, there are generations that believe they were part of a, they were living within a remarkable story. I think there are generations that believe they were living within the end of the world. And um, what we have to get our heads wrapped around is what story do we think that we're in? Do we think that we're in the story of an America that's growing increasingly more divided forever? Do we think that we're in a story of a world that is, become, that is going to become less tenable forever? Um, and do we think that we have no agency within that story? Um, I fear, I fear that we think that, I fear that many people believe they're living in a story they don't have a lot of agency within and believe that that story is, is on a downward trajectory. Where does that come from? Um, I think, it comes from some level of reality. There are real crises and traumas and issues and complexities. I think it comes from um, which messaging we choose to receive, what we, what we choose to focus on. One of the people that I really admire is a woman named Adrienne Marie Brown. And she has this phrase, what, what you uh, pay attention to grows, what you focus on grows. Um, and so if we begin, so that, and I, and so I think there's some, something real that's there as well. You start to focus on cynicism and you find all the validation for that cynicism. You have to focus on progress. Where does the truth live in between those things? I think is a lifelong question. Um, but I really find it important for young people and for families to choose to focus on what they can contribute, what they can be a part of. What and I think that's part of this help, help one now. So I think that's why Chris named this organization help one now is that you're right. No one person is going to be the hero. Like partnership is the hero, engagement is the hero, but your job is not to solve it. You and I and this podcast and I am not going to end global poverty. That's never the proposition. 
the proposition is, could you help one now? Could we put in this optometry clinic this year? And the data points us to that's going to make a great impact. The data points, could we help one community now? Could you help one student now? Could you say, yes, I do have something in my bag for you? Or yes, this school could build another wing. Or yes, the school could hire one more teacher. Or yes, um, what happens when we focus on helping one now? And I think our organization believes that if more families do that, if more communities do that, if we if we try to focus on so that it will grow, focus on helping one now collectively, we'll find ourselves down the road in a much better place. And I believe that personally. Like I'm not going to get in better shape today by doing any kind of workout. But if I, if I focus on doing one healthy thing today and I build on that tomorrow and I build on that the next day, I might look down the road in six months and be in a different place. So I hope, I think there's a huge opportunity um, to lead people back into this feeling of helping one now and focusing on that and seeing where that leads them. Yeah, it's it's kind of the incremental growth thing um mixed up with um i don't there's andy stanley has this great comment he said um you know do for one what you wish you could do for everybody yeah i mean you're not going to be able to to get mm. everybody so just work on that one person that one individual um you know because by focusing on that hopefully that's going to spread out to another individual that they're going to do and it's going to spread like wildfire from there but you got to have the belief that you know if you look at this overarching challenge that can't be fixed in, you know, one's fell swoop, you're just not going to do anything. So why not focus on that one that you wish you could do for everybody? And uh, that makes things so much better when you're looking at your community. Absolutely. What are some of the, what are some of the um, traits that you see across your community that is pretty common? Hmm. Are you, are you asking about my, my community in Raleigh? My, my community, my, sort of my friends and family are the people I'm maybe closest to? No, I'm, I'm speaking more about or you um, more... Help One Now and really more from, from a point of not just the volunteers and not just you guys, but I'm talking about also the communities that you guys are actually going to and partnering with. Mm. You know, one of the things that I think is key and, and pretty remarkable um, is a very particular type of resilience that I'd like to speak to. Um, resilience is a word that gets thrown around a lot. As a teacher, we would talk about rigor or resilience or grit a fair amount. Um, but I want to speak to a, a very particular moment. And it's the moment when your intention to do something effectively doesn't match your impact. Um, I know if I don't prepare well as a teacher and then that lesson doesn't go well, uh, you kind of know deep down, that was on me. That was my fault. I'll do better tomorrow. It hurts in a particular way, but it's not devastating. Um, when I work all night on something, because I really want to prepare and be remarkable, and my intention is to offer the best class I've ever taught my entire life, and then when I go to execute it, it falls apart. Or worse, for some student, it's it's um, a really negative experience. Not only was it not engaging, but it was maybe a negative experience. Um, that feeling of, of a big gap between your intention and impact is horrible. And we've all been there. We've all experienced it. And I think in any kind of work, um, any kind of social service work, you're going to hit those moments where your intention was to do good and your impact didn't match your intention. And what is true about the Help One Now community, what is true about our local leaders is that they have all hit moments where that happened, took in the feedback, thought critically about it, uh, sought outside uh, collaboration or, or sought, sought some sort of maybe even internal collaboration and then it kept moving forward that there are multiple iterations of what they're after um, that maybe they started as we're focused on 24-7 uh, care for abandoned children and we realize that as much as that's been a great intention that's not breaking a cycle of generational poverty we have we need we need to add an education wing and they add an education wing and they realize like these kids are sick because of the water that they're drinking. So even though we have this great intention of 24-7 care and education, if they keep drinking water that's making them sick, they're never going to learn all the things they need to learn. So now we have to figure out how to get into water. And continuing to be reflective and allow their, not their mission, their mission is actually always the same, uh, but their tactics have grown and uh, been revised. And they've, they've hit those moments of we're, we're being, if we're being honest with ourselves, we are not achieving the goal we want to achieve. 
And so how do we seek input and seek guidance um, and have the courage to then refine what we're doing and add on to it or shift or adjust or pivot um, so that our intentions align with our impact. And I think that that frustration, that pain of, uh, I, I gave, I think it happens locally all the time. I gave money to this organization and it, it didn't do what I thought they would do, or it didn't, their impact's not what I thought they would be. I'm not going to give anymore. I don't want I don't, I don't want to act anymore. And I think the key here with these, with a lot of these leaders who have created incredible change has been, no, you stay in the game. You don't stifle that intention anymore. You don't stifle your intention to care. You adjust your tactics to match your impact. Um, and I think we could all, I'm, I'm deeply inspired by that. And one of the things that you guys did was y'all decided to partner with local people as opposed to this swoop in, fix stuff and leave kind of process. Um, are you seeing that being a lot more successful? Nothing is more core to our theories on around change than that. There, there is no help one now without our, without the local leaders that we partner with. Um, there's nothing more core to our identity. And the reason for that is sustainability. Um, and, and the reason for that is to be effective, right? So what we do and, and why the model feels so, so effective to me is you find folks who are already part of our local leadership, local leader uh, search process involves finding people who have already started schools, started churches, started organizations that have a lot of local buy-in, that have community buy-in. Uh, they know the community, they're of the community, and they're, they are creating the change they want to see in the world. And what we do, the privilege that we have is coming alongside those leaders um, and ask them questions like, what would this look like if, if you were to have more funding? What would the next step look like? If you were to grow and scale um, strategically, what would that look like? Um, if you were to build up a savings so that when the next crisis inevitably comes, be it natural disaster or um, a human resource challenge, what would it look like um, to make sure that that all of this social capital you've built up, all this momentum you've built up um, doesn't go away? Not only, and so instead of it going away when a crisis hits, um, can we make sure that it's both stable and hopefully one day scalable? And I just think, that what that does is challenge some assumptions that the that the issue is a um, talent issue. The, like the reason that certain communities might be experiencing extreme poverty is a talent issue um, or a knowledge issue. When really, time after time, it's a resource issue. It's a it's a it's how things have shaken up through through all the chaos that it that is the world that is history that is our our current moment and. And in each community, it's, it's a different it's a different history and it's a different moment. It's a different type of chaos that led to this, right? But um, well, our our core assumption uh, is that the answers are there and the talent is there, and that that even as each community has its own story, that core assumption has been proven true time and time and time again. So you know, we talked a little bit about some of the programs you guys are doing. I, I do want to dig into exactly what you guys are doing with this optometry project and, and how that's fitting into the Dominican Republic. And, and how did that even come about? What, what was the, Hey, this is a need that really needs fulfilled. Oh yeah. This is, this is exciting because I see the optometry clinic as such a slam dunk of an opportunity. Um, Tears is a, as an organization in La Vega uh, in the Dominican Republic. And, and uh, outside of La Vega is a neighborhood, um, is a barrio that is, is up on the mountains, up in the hills outside of La Vega. And it began in 1976 after a hurricane. Uh, the government took public land and plotted it out as a place for people to, for displaced people from the hurricane uh, to have temporary housing. And then for a number of reasons, that temporary housing became permanent housing. Um, and... Rod, our local partner there, um, in the 90s, started a school. Because what had happened is a lot of the children that were born in that uh, barrio, in that neighborhood, didn't have birth certificates or, ac or, or access to their birth certificates and in turn couldn't enroll for public schools. And so there was a massive need um, for unschooled children to have access to school. And that's so the, his first mission was to build out the school. And as the school grew... Um, the next clear and obvious thing, I, I referenced this a little bit earlier, uh, was the need for clean water. A lot of the families 
and the students were getting sick because they didn't have access to clean water. Um, and so they figured out first how to supply clean water to the students while they were at school. And once they figured out that and had that moving, they realized they could expand it to the family. So if you're drinking clean water at school, but you're drinking water at home that makes you sick, you're still going to end up being sick at school, right? We haven't actually solved the problem yet. We had a great intention, but our impact, we're not at our impact yet. Well, once they realized that they could, they could uh, scale the water filtration system uh, enough to serve the families as well, they realized they could serve the whole barrio. And now they're providing uh, some of the cleanest and cheapest, cheapest clean water in the region. Uh, to the, and people are coming from outside the neighborhood to come buy this water. And the profit from that water, not only do graduates from the school work for the uh, water filtration project, um, but it also helps fund the profits from that project help fund the school. Um, and then the next project became uh, a lot of these students uh, need mental health access. So like to, to have the kind of classrooms, not just access to school, but access to quality school. Um, we need to create a medical clinic that can provide basic mental health uh, care. And that grew and then that expanded to families and it sort of grew in the same way as the water filtration program. Um, another step became dentistry. And so we put in and the school is built out of shipping containers. And so it, it, it was built with the uh, ability to, knowing that the school would grow, uh, it was built with the ability to uh, expand it as you we went. And so on the same campus where the high school is, uh, they expanded this medical clinic. Uh, where the optometry clinic will one day be. And so the water was going, um, mental health care was going, soon dentistry started, became this really immediate, uh, without, without uh, access to dentistry, uh, it can quickly lead to other health implications. And it was the same model, right? Start with the students, expanded the families, expanded the community. And now we're in a place where the building already exists, some of the funding already exists, the uh, optometrist who will run the clinic has already been identified. And what we're trying to do uh, is raise enough money, not just to build, to purchase all the equipment, which we'll purchase from Dominican suppliers so that when something breaks, it can be quickly solved in country. Um, but then also to run the program for two years. We estimate that it will take about two years. Uh, first, there's just an unmet um, need. So th there'll be a massive need uh, for uh, eye care for every student. And once we get through that first massive need, then I think it'll become more regular. Right. So there's if no, the entire school doesn't have access to optometry care, eye exams or classes right now. The first year is going to see uh, really, really high numbers of service right. and care and need. And then ideally, over the next couple of years, it'll become more. Um, more constant, but but less less immediately intense and that after two years, it should be if it follows the same sort of model or trajectory that the other programs have. Uh, led. Not only should it be sustainable, but it should be funding the school. So right now, uh, donors to help one now help support the school um, and will be helping support the optometry clinic. But soon, uh, all four of those resources, like the whole idea is that uh, advocates like us, advocates like help one now should be working in such a way that they render themselves unnecessary, right? Like there's, we, imagine a, we imagine a La Vega that no longer um, needs help one now. And what's also kind of amazing to Graduates from Tears School um, have already begun their own missions, their own service work in NABA. Um, so I went down there recently. And they're like, hey, on Friday, you got to come with us. Uh, there's, there's a um, town even, even more uh, rural or remote than here uh, that really needs access to early childhood education. They don't, have, they don't have great early childhood education or the quality that they deserve. And we're going to go um, look at the land where the early childhood ed is going to be. And Ted, there are certainly things in La Vega that could continue to improve, but these people realize uh, that being generous to your neighbor is actually part of what gives your life purpose. And so we don't have to wait for that classroom to have um, to be as fully remodeled as we one day want it to be, or we don't have to wait for the optometry clinic to be done. We're already sending all of our seniors uh, to be in service of their neighbor. Um, but I find this optometry clinic exciting and a, and a great example of, um, it's almost a no brainer to me. Like we already have all of the, there's already so many proof of concepts lined up. The, the space is already there. We, the, doc, the optometrist is already there. So we're, we're so close to, to finishing this piece. Um, and I think as, as we think about that, in, the anxiety and cynicism um, that I was talking about in some of my classrooms, I think seeing this be successful and seeing just how, how much change has happened in La Vega since Rod got there, um, those are the kinds of things that, that stop 
it feel that question feeling theoretical is the world becoming more beautiful or less beautiful how do how do i think you're like oh I've, I've been a part of it i've been a part i've been an active player and a witness uh to the world becoming more beautiful in a really tangible and measurable way and i see my job as as the privilege of inviting people to that like yes you're going to create be part of great change in la vega but really I want this for you and your family. I want this for your dinner table. So you, you can talk about, hey, I, I went down there and saw that. Or we saved as a family and committed this amount of money. And it was an investment that really changed the lives of some of these young people and hopefully changed our perspective uh, in our life as well. So um, I think that project is so exciting. And I'm just desperate to invite more people into it. It must have felt just incredible, though, when you go into this community to go and help and you realize that if if they didn't already have this in their in their mindset already, does somebody say, "Hey, you think it's bad here? Let me show you this other community that needs us worse than what what we needed." I mean, that's gotta that's gotta feel good knowing that they care that much about somebody else. You know, it it does feel good, and I'll tell you, said it's also really humbling. Um, another another as a public school teacher, you'll see a lot in the news of how uh, there's there are a, there are there is a some public opinion that teachers aren't paid what they could be. Uh, that, that's a headline you see sometimes or like, and, uh, and then I, when I learned that my salary as a teacher is in the top 1% of salaries globally, um, that's, that's pretty humbling as well. Right. So there, there's a minute where you go like, what, what is enough? What is enough to bring myself purpose? When we look at a lot of the anxiety and depression that exists in our country that has so much excess, um, what does that say around my own mindset, my, my own sense of who I belong to, what belongs to me? Um, so it's not just inspiring. It, it also is challenging and humbling in some ways. To, to um, When do I feel like I have enough? When do I feel like, here's actually an even harder one. When do I feel like my daughter has enough? I'm saving enough um, in order for me to give to others. And is giving, is engaging, is, is community responsibility something you do when all of your needs are met and you're done, or is it part of your needs? Is, is, is that a non-negotiable part of what it means for you to be alive and be participating in this world? Um, and I would, I know that for our partners, um, it's part of their needs. And when I think about, so I just got to interface with one of our partners in Haiti and Haiti's really, um, hey, he's been going through it, but it's going through it in ways that I actually cannot imagine. Um, and this particular partner could absolutely live here instead. He's from Haiti. He's done remarkable things in Haiti. Um, but if he wanted to get out of Port-au-Prince, which is struggling through almost unimaginable violence and come live in Raleigh, he could choose to do that today. And every day he chooses to stay engaged, um, which really did. I've, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not. Why do we need to partner with local leaders? Because they have more courage than I do, because they have more commitment than I do. Um, but I hope that I can get, I hope that some of that can wear off on me. I hope that some of that commitment uh, some of that courage wears off on me for sure. And for those of you who are wondering about kind of where the process for this, how this comes and you can go to the help one now website and see this, but there's a story that um, Chris Marlowe tells. And I, and I've had heard this same story actually told in um, Dan Heath's book upstream uh, where he talks about you, oh, and yeah. a friend of yours are sitting next to a river and all of a sudden you see this kid floating down the river and they're screaming for help. And, you know, you dive in and you go grab them. And just about the time you get back to the shore, there's another kid coming down the stream, you know, so your friend jumps in and goes get some. And then just about the time that he gets back to the shore, there's another one. And then and it's just like one after the other and you just, you can't even keep up with it. And all of a sudden you look up and your friend is heading up the shore and you go, Hey, where are you going? He goes, I'm going to go find out who's upstream and throwing these kids in the water what we tend to forget to do is to figure out what our cause of the problem is. We're, we're just trying to fix the problem when we don't sometimes don't even look and see what the cause is. And I think that's the other thing that's really critical about what you're doing by partnering with these people who are there on the scene, because, you know, when we come in, we, we got all the answers. We don't need your help. But if we're partnering with these people who are there, who know what's really happening and we actually ask them, where do you need the help? It's a whole lot better than what we typically do, which is, again, just drop in, do our thing, and leave. Yeah, absolutely, Ted. And, you know, I worry that isn't such an amazing metaphor. Like, uh, when do we start going upstream? I worry that not, not only are we not um, 
not only are we are, are we not going upstream always, uh, but sometimes we're not even pulling the kid out of the river. Sometimes we're sitting on our phones yeah. 20 feet from the river, writing a comment about how can you believe that we live in a world where, where kids are going down the river and you're not even pulling them out. And, and then you're crying about how sad you are at the end of your day, commenting about how we're not pulling kids out of the river. Um, and, and so there, there's real opportunity there. I think that, I think, um, yeah, I, I think that's such a beautiful illustration. When, when do we go upstream? And at some point you got to do both, right? At some point you got to do a little bit of both, but my, my perception is that in the eighties and nineties, um, there was this real attention on global poverty and incredible, incredible progress was made. Um, but not all of the initiatives worked. And a lot of the initiatives are what you were talking about, Ted. They were, they were uh, wealthier nations going into less wealthy nations and saying, like, I have the solution. It looks like this. And then when that didn't work, when that intention didn't match the impact, it then felt like, see, it's not worth it. There, we'll never get upstream enough. Um, it's just inevitable that kids are going to be in the river. Um, and what is exciting is that Help One Now uh, has been committed to local leadership from the very first time from our founding. Like that was, that was part of our origin story, but this notion, which might've felt, um, countercultural maybe 10 years ago. Um, the more I talk to people across all sorts of political spectrums, I don't think it's, it's one demographic. The more I talk to people about our, this model of trusting local leadership and people who already have the trust in their community, um, based on their actions, most everyone's instinct is, yeah, that's right. That is it. And it's not erasing yourself that you have nothing to offer. One of the coolest things I think Help One Now does is we get on these global calls where our local partners um, are collaborating together across the world. Um, and so, for example, the school in the Dominican Republic uh, was built by the same organization that built schools, are the schools that we help support in Haiti. And it was actually our, one of our Haitian leaders who collaborated with our Dominican leader to say, oh, what's the budget for your, for your high school? We can do it in two-thirds of that budget. We can do it twice as fast. And it can be built with the capacity to expand, which is now why we had this medical clinic. But it was that collaboration, right? So it's not just us coming alongside local leaders, but it's also us helping uh, facilitate the network of local leaders who are working on distinct problems in each of their areas, but with a lot of similarities. And so they're able to say, like, here's the challenge I'm going through. Um, I know you faced something similar before. What, what were some of the things you learned along the way? Um, which I think is actually that even next level. So it's not just partnering with one local leader, but connecting them to one another as they partner with each other. Um, and I find that truly um, kind of next level. So this all sounds real cool and everything, but I mean, let's get to the ask. What is it that you really need from, from us? What do you, what do you need from the optometry community? Yeah, there are, um, I, I think I have, I think I have three asks. Uh, one is per, so we're, we're a small organization there. Uh, we're a large organization globally and we're a small organization domestically. Uh, there are only 11 of us domestically, including the founder and CEO. Um, and it's my job to meet with people and, and for them to ask the hard questions. Like there, there is undeniable. The first time I heard someone pitch help one now, I thought like, what are you hiding? I don't believe you. It can't be this good. It can't be this effective. And I'm, I kind of resented him. He's now my boss and one of my best family friends, <laughs> but, and he's also like uh, a really amazing musician. I just thought like, you're like, this can't be it. I don't, I don't buy your optimism. Um, and so one of the things I would love to do is if, if there's someone listening, who's interested in getting more involved, but is having some of those thoughts. Um, I would love to set up a meeting to look through, to, to ask those hard questions and then share with you some of the data, right? Like what, what do our financials look like? I, I'd happily share that with you. What does our 10-year trajectory look like in any, any given community? I'd love to share that with you. If you want to get into the nitty gritty because you're kind of on the edge or frankly, don't believe it. If you're like listening going, I, I'm not bought in, I, but no way. Uh, I'd love to have that phone call or that soon. So that, that's one. I, I think I would love to connect with people. Um, and that's quite literally my job. The second one um, is we're about $13,000 on our way towards funding this optometry clinic in the Dominican Republic. And it's going to take $90,000 to fund it and then run it for two years. And then we believe at that two-year mark, that's when it should be based on our other projects there, or, or really tiers, rods, other projects there. That's when it should be self-sustaining. Uh, it's fifty thousand uh, dollars in our budget to to get all the equipment and get it funded, and then another forty thousand dollars to run it for two years. And so uh, we want to complete this this fall. And 
um, Rod wants to complete this this fall. Tears wants to complete it this fall. And the optometrist is sitting ready, ready to make it, not sitting, working, but ready to make it happen. Right. Um, so that in a one-time gift, that's what we really need to make happen. Then the third piece is I, I love and I'm passionate about inviting families into our um, monthly giving program called The Circle. Uh, and at $50 a month, families support one student to go to school, which is everything from teacher pay, uniforms, uh, hot meals, hot breakfast and lunch, um, and then the, and what it costs to run the school. $100 helps support a, a program called the Family Business Program, which is a locally led entrepreneurship program um, focusing on uh, empowering families to run small businesses um, while their students are in school. And $150 funds both. Um, that really is probably the kind of thing that someone's going to do after they kick around and look at our numbers some more. Um, if you're going to make a commitment that's, that's monthly, um, I know that I, I would want to see more of the data. Um, but that's also our end game. So what that does, what, what, although projects like the, like the optometry clinic, um, it's remarkable. Like once we get this funded and going, uh, a one-time gift makes a remarkable difference. The smaller, but monthly gifts allow us to make long-term plans with our partners. So just like we found local leadership, the most effective strategy for sustainable change. Um, if we wait until the end of the year, every year to guess what our budget will be for the next year. It's just a little bit harder to plan the next year. It's a little bit harder to make those projects happen. So when someone donates $10,000 at the end of the year, it makes a remarkable difference. But if we have no idea it's coming, it's harder to quickly or swiftly leverage those that resource, right? So we find that the smaller monthly donation that we can plan on um, allows us to partner with our local leaders uh, a little more strategically. So that that's one of the end game. Those are sort of the three end game now. So I would love a meeting. Uh, a one-time donation to help us get this optometry clinic funded um, and an opportunity uh, to talk to you about joining the circle, which is our monthly giving program. I think the other thing I would pitch um, is that if you are interested in coming to see, I do think witnessing this work makes a big difference. And so we take trips, and not necessarily service trips, um, but often for donors who are asking those questions, are kicking around, are interested in making a large donation, um, but want to see the work for themselves, I would say if you're interested in that, we do love uh, taking people to come witness the work and meet our partners. And so how would someone do all that? I mean, what, what's the connection? Is it, is it like a website we need to go to? Is there some other, what, what would, how would we actually connect to that? Yep, helponenow.org, all spelled out. So um, O-N-E, helponenow.org. Uh, we'll lead you to our website, which will uh, offer you more information on each of our partners, but also clear clear opportunities to donate. You can make the one-time donation there or, an, or a uh, monthly donation, a reoccurring donation there. Um, and then you could email me at will.kylie at helponenow.com. And we can connect around taking a trip. Taking a trip is you can't just sign up for a trip online. That There's a little bit more logistics that has to go into sure. that. But we could set you, we have multiple trips. We have about eight trips going down. To different places this year already and, and some more on, on the way. So you connect with me if you wanted to set up a phone call, connect with me if you wanted to talk about traveling or traveling with your family. Um, or if you, if you, yeah, those, those are kind of the two options. So helponenow.org or will.kylie at helponenow.com. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to have this is because, you know, we, we tend to look at the world and think, oh, yeah, I'm not really going to make that much difference, but these little small things you talked about a monthly tiny donation to help you guys make your budget work a little bit more freely, uh, taking a, a weekend or a little bit longer to run over to, to the Dominican Republic to see really what's going on. Uh, it makes a huge difference for a lot of people and you don't realize really the fact is the thing that really gets changed a lot of times is you as well. And, uh, that's, that's the other thing that's really important about this. It's not just about the people you're helping. You're, it's really difficult to go through these feelings of, of remorse and things are going terrible when you're pouring your heart out for somebody. Yep. Yes, Ted. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that we know this deep down. I think it's, it's so true to what it means to be human that we know that it feels good to be of service to others. We know that it, that it feels inspiring to feel like you're making an impact. Um, and I think we lose touch with that feeling. I think for a number of ways, there are, there are easier and cheaper ways to get a little dopamine rush. It is easier to, um, you know, I'll do all the other things that might lead to feeling like kind of good for a little while. 
Um, but we know deep down in our guts that being of service, waking up in the morning and feeling like you're making an impact, a measurable impact, um, a tangible impact, um, feels can 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 transform your life. It actually should be mutually transforming. And so my job is not to be the local leader who knows how to break cycles of uh, generational po poverty. Uh, my job is to remind people how great it feels to be a part of transformation and how mutually transforming that can be. Um, and I was the cynical person hearing the pitch. And I think that's why I love doing this job. I, I was the cynical teacher thinking like nothing's going to change. Um, I empathize so deeply with all of those students who said, I think that world's getting worse on a daily basis. Um, and I know how much freer I feel because I have the privilege of being part of this story on a day in and day basis, but there's room on the bus. They're like, there's so much room and whether it's inspiring someone to get more involved with the nonprofit, they're more connected to, whether that's inspiring someone to come join part of what we're doing. Um, those, that, some of that data I shared on global poverty isn't because I help one now by ourselves. We're in a few communities. Um, but I do want to get people, I want to give, I want to help people wake up and knowing they're part of something beautiful. Uh, and I think we're lacking that in a, in a drastic, drastic way right now, culturally. I can't wait to get you and, and Chris Morris and Chris Marlowe all together on a podcast in the future and hear about what's happening and how exciting this is. I'm going to make sure we get all this information in the show notes so everybody knows how to get in touch with Will and figure out what's going on. And, and also, Will, just thanks for giving us an opportunity to, to really make a difference in somebody else's life. Said it's such a pleasure, and I do think uh, let's get back together when um, this optometry clinic is up and running. I think that'd be a remarkable part two of this podcast. So whenever it might happen, let's bring all three of those men, uh, all three of us, <laughs> including myself, uh, all four of us together, um, and give that part two when we got this up and rolling. It's a date.